I love Psalm 139. Um, I don't recall, um, you know, it's through the Psalms that we learn about the importance of prayer and the acknowledgement of pain as well as the power of praise and fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, for most commentators, uh, this psalm elicits meditations on the comforts we find in God's omniscience, His omnipresence, and His omnipotence. It's reason that God's provincial knowledge and control over all aspects of creation will lead us to find our life security in Him because He is so high above and beyond ourselves, beyond things, beyond other people. And I think this might be why I love the psalm so much. Because as I consider the words of the psalm, it raises my mind to such a level that I am in awe of our God. This psalm is one of a group of psalms that are known as imprecatory psalms. That's a $5 word, which means that it's a psalm that invokes God's wrath and judgment against his enemies. We find that sentiment expressed in the verses 19 through 22. And we'll discuss a little bit more of that later, and there's some confusion uh, along those lines that I want to kind of cover. There's a notion, or a notation at the beginning of the psalm which says, for the chief musician. If it was written to Providence, it would be to Mike Solarchek, right? <laughs> and it's a psalm of David. Spurgeon states that the chief musician was the master director of the sacred music in the sanctuary. In other words, these psalms were composed to be used as worship in the, in the worship service. And we find a reference to that in Second Chronicles uh, verse, uh, chapter 29, verse 30. It's where King Hezekiah had restored worship in the temple. And he says, uh, Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph, the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. There are over 50 psalms stating for the chief musician. 39 of those are indicated to be written by David. John MacArthur describes the psalm as a, personally, uh, a personal psalm expressing David's awe that God knew him even to the minutest detail. The exact occasion of the psalm, um, why it was written, is unknown. But MacArthur theorizes that perhaps David was thinking back to when he was an anointed king by Samuel. And we'll find this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16. When they uh, entered, and he's talking about Samuel entering, he looked at Eliab, uh, David's brother, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his height or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. As we look at the psalm, it seems to be naturally arranged into five themes, which I will use as the general outline although arguably there is some overlap uh, throughout the psalm. It begins by unfolding three of God's attributes, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. Then there are those pesky verses that call for justice, and then a call for transformation. 
So we're going to start and go through each one, and I'm going to reread the verses that Jerry has already read for you, So just so you have the verses that we're talking about in your mind as we're going through them. So let's look at the first six verses that have to do with God's omniscience. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I use J.I. Packer's book, uh, A Concise Theology, for a clear definition of what these attributes actually mean um, that are outlined in the psalm. Our first attribute, omniscience, is a word that means knowing everything. Scripture declares that God's eyes run everywhere. In addition to the verses I've just read, we see this attribute described in other verses as well, and I'm going to read through some of those. That They're all outlined on there if you want to take notes. Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands their work. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Hebrews 4.13 Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes. To whom? To him. To whom we must give an account. He searches all hearts. He observes everyone's ways. In other words, he knows everything about everything and everybody all the time. As I've already read from 1 Samuel, God sees not a man as a man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In Luke we find, he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts, what people value highly, is detestable in God's sight. And Revelations 2.23, where Jesus is addressing the corrupt church, I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay you, each of you, according to your deeds. In addition to this, God knows the future no less than the past or the present. He knows the possible events that never happen, no less than the actual events that do occur. Unlike a computer, which needs to retrieve information from a file, God's knowledge is always, immediately, and directly before his mind. God's knowledge is linked to his sovereignty. He knows each thing, both in itself and in relation to all other things. Because he created it. He sustains it, and now he makes it function for every moment according to his plan. Ephesians 1 says, In him we are also chosen, 
having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now, I don't know what your reaction is to that. Um, You know, I talked about how David derives great comfort from knowing and believing that all aspects of everything are in the hands of a loving God. And as well we should. But that's not my first reaction. Rather than comfort, I think I refer to it as terror or shame that God of God's omniscience. Let me illustrate my point uh, from my teenage years. Back when I lived in upstate New York, um, while I was still in high school, I'd say maybe 16 or 17 years old, um, I worked on a dairy farm milking cows in the morning. So before school, I'd get up about 4 a.m., I'd go to the barn, we'd milk the cows, complete a few chores, return home, I'd wash up, and I'd go to school for the day. We lived in a farming community, and my brother, who's here with us this morning, um, he also did the same thing. Um, It really wasn't very unusual that that's what you did before school. One cold winter morning, about five or six new fallen inches of snow on the ground, I awoke to discover there was no school that day. And I looked at that snow, and I said, I don't want to milk them cows this morning. (laughs) So I called my boss, Jim, and I said, Jim, you know, with all the snow on the ground, I couldn't see very well, and I backed my car into the ditch. I'm stuck. I'm not going to be at work today. He goes, is, is your car all right? I go, yeah, it's okay. Everything will be fine. He says, well, uh, a little later, I'll just me and my brother will get it out of, out of the ditch. And I hung up the phone. I went back to bed, and I fell asleep. Do you ever watch I Love Lucy? Do you recall when Lucy's scheme was about to unravel? You hear this voice in the background go, uh-oh. <laughs> just a little bit of trivia. That's actually Lucy's mother, Dee Dee, uh, Dee Dee Ball. Who, who did that. She was at every single of the live tapings of the I Love Lucy show, and that was her voice. And they used that same laugh track on a whole bunch of other shows, too, as a matter of fact. So you hear it all over the place. Anyway, <laughs> this is the uh-oh. <laughs> About an hour later, um, one of my siblings, I'm not sure if it was Robert or not, he came and he woke me up to tell me that Jim was at the front door. <laughs> and he wanted to speak to me now. You can probably imagine the terror I felt. So I went to the door, and he was none too pleased with me. He told me to go get dressed and get in the truck. He'd be waiting for me. So trembling, I did as I was told, and I got in the truck, and he backed out the driver with no problem whatsoever. And um, I was sitting there, kind of looking at my hands and staring at the floor, there was a very uncomfortable silence, and um, I finally got the courage up, and I said, Jim, I guess i got to tell you, I lied to you. And he goes, no! <laughs> you think? Because what do you think was my first clue, that your car's sitting in the driveway, completely covered in snow, or there was not a single track behind it? <laughs> that was one rough morning to tell you. <laughs> what I'm t- attempting to illustrate here, though, is The cause of my terror and shame was the discovery of my lie. It wasn't so much the fact that I lied itself. 
I went right back to bed and fell asleep. My lie didn't bother me. But when the bright light of the truth was shown on it to another person, namely one who is an authority, that's when the fear and shame came. We see this principle first illustrated in Genesis with Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. My personal example here is of a blatant sin, no doubt. And I'd like to think that I've come a long way since then. And out of my love for Jesus, I would never do anything so flagrant now. But isn't it also true that we all live a secret life? What if PBC had a truth machine right here? And then if I stood right here in this place, every idle thought... Every idle word and every idle action were to be displayed on the screens before you. Would I be able to stand before you? Would the weight of the shame of my life cause me to bow in shame before you? What if it was you? First John... Chapter 1 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. As believers, we need to come to terms with this truth. It's the basis for our understanding of grace. It should be obvious that believers should confront the major sins in our lives and eradicate them with the help of God. But knowledge of God's omniscience informs us that we can't stop at the obvious ones. We need to dig deeper. I have a book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins with the subtitle Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. In the preface it says, Conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with uh, with some of the major sins of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined and subtle sins. The list includes in the book that he has is ungodliness, anxiety and frustration, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, anger, and judgmentalism, jealousy, loose lips. Am I striking any chords here, people? The point here is God does not need a truth machine. He knows every detail about each and every one of us every moment. One method we can use to confirm that this is true is when we read our Bibles. We not only discover a God through our reading, we discover things about us too. A few weeks ago, Leslie Lozano attended an elder meeting to report on her new ministry, um, his um, It's part of the review. She brought several testimonies from people who were benefiting uh, from the ministry. And it's both churched and unchurched people. Just as a side note, this is one of the great beautiful privileges of being an elder is to witness 
the types of ministries that we have in this church and how they're impacting other people. It's, it, it's just it's unbelievable. And if you'd like to know more, I, she could ask Leslie about it, and she'd love to talk to you about it. It's, it's, it's a wonderful ministry. Anyway, one of the testimonies that she brought forward really struck me, and it's, perhaps it's because I was meditating on this psalm anyway. I'd like to share a portion of what this blessed lady said. She says, I have truly enjoyed our His ministry. It has been a real eye-opener for me. The study really hits home. Reading the scripture and thinking, wow, that's how I feel. Or yes, that sounds like me. And how the Bible is describing so much of what is happening in our world right now. Before we move on, I want to take a quick look at two occasions where Jesus displays his omniscience. Uh, which we find in the New Testament, and they're both from the Gospel of John. The first is from the first chapter of, God, of John, and uh, it's about when Nathaniel was found and called to uh, be a disciple. The next day, Jesus decided to leave Galilee, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Later on in John, we find the account when Jesus met the woman at the well. There they had a discussion about a drink of water and the kingdom of God, and Jesus confronts her regarding her current living arrangement. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. After some more discussion on the proper location of worship, uh, she runs through the town to tell the people. Um, she, she leaves her water jar, and the woman went back to town, and she said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. The scripture then tells us that the Samaritans believed because of this woman's testimony, and they urged Jesus to stay, which he did for two days. Finally, later on in verse 42, he says, they say, They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. It's accounts like this in the New Testament that give us a clear indication of Jesus' true identity. The Old Testament unmistakably tells us about God's attributes, and when we see those same attributes demonstrated by Jesus, we're going to get a really good idea of who he is. All right, so we spent a lot of time on the first six verses of the psalm. There's still some things I want to tie up about this, and we'll do that a little later. But for now, we're going to move on. I'll combine the next two attributes, God's omnipresence and omnipotence, and refer to it as his almightiness. And the reason I'm doing that 
Well, that's how Packer did it in his book, so I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to read those same verses. Uh, we'll read verses 7 through 18. Where can I go from your spirit, and where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be like light about me. Indeed, darkness shall not hide you from me, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I shall praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, you skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. You, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, and when there was yet none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake... I'm still with you. God's, God's is omnipresent, and therefore he is inescapable. But do you see the implications of the wording of the text? When David asks, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence, it's pretty obvious that there's a part of him that wants to get away from God. But it cannot be done. If David were to fly to the heavens or descend to hell, if he were to travel as far or as east or as far west as might be imagined, if he was able to hide in the darkness, nothing could hide him from God's searching gaze. But as we, as we will see by the end of the psalm, it is clear that David does not want to escape from God. The way Packer's definition puts it, God is present in all places. We should not think of him, however, as filling spaces. He has no physical dimensions. It is pure spirit that pervades all things. In a relationship of imminence, that is more than we body-bound creatures can understand. One thing that is clear, and that he is present everywhere in the fullness of all that he is, and all the powers that he has, and needy souls praying to him anywhere in the world receive the same fullness of undivided attention. Because God is omnipresent, he is able to give his entire attention to millions of individuals at the same time. Just as our psalm declares, so do other passages in Scripture. In Jeremiah 23, we find, Who can hide in the secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill the heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Acts 17, which we actually read a little earlier. Uh, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as he needs anything. 
Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some, as your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul speaks of the ascended Christ as filling all things in Ephesians chapter 4. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly, earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Christ's availability everywhere in the fullness of his power is certainly part of the meaning that is being expressed here. It is a true thing to say that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are today omnipresent together, though the personal presence of the glorified Son is spiritual through the Holy Spirit. It is not physical as in bodily form. Let's look at omnipotence, which means God is all-powerful. Another way to say it is God can do anything that power is capable of doing. I'd like to address a challenge you might see along the lines of God's power. Believe it or not, some things are actually beyond God to do, so to speak. But the difficulty has nothing to do with God's power. Square circles are impossible because they are... They're, they're, um, Square circles. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's a contradiction. <laughs> you can't have a square circle, just like married bachelors. You can't have a married bachelor. It's a contradiction. No amount of power is going to allow that to happen. It's the same thing when say, can God make a stone so big he can't lift it? What they're really asking is, can God defeat himself? It can't be done. It doesn't make any sense. It's nonsense is what it is. But when it comes to matters of God's will or fulfilling his promises, God not only has the power to do it, he will do it. The verses of the psalm referencing God's all-powerful nature use the imagery of his creation of us in his image. They also offer up praise and thanksgiving for him to doing it. He formed us and preserved us in our mother's womb. He brought us in the world according to his plan and timeline. We're here right now, at this moment, according to his all-knowing plan. That is why it is good Christian custom to celebrate your birthday. It's the time he ordained for your visitation on this earth. Knowledge of God's almightiness and his omnipresence and omnipotence or aspects of his almightiness, naturally produces great faith and great praise, such as, along with the psalmist, we can exclaim, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. We're going to move now to the what I think are the most difficult verses in the psalm. I did briefly consider leaving them out, <laughs> To be honest, it actually flows very well with how I want to tie this all thing up. So let's go to the verses uh, 19 through 22, where we have a call for 
God's justice. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. There's a lot of controversy in Christian circles regarding imprecatory psalms because of the many New Testament verses exhorting us believers to love their enemies. But to be really honest, there's just as many of those verses in the Old Testament as well, so it's not a New Testament problem. The Bible exhorts believers to love their enemies, to pray for them, and do good for them. And perhaps because of this, maybe it's wrong for us to actually uh, pray these, uh, these psalms that rain judgment down on God's enemies. I want to take a look at one of the strongest passages I know of that talks to this so we can feel the full strength of the concern. And it's from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you uh, greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Passages such as these call for us uh, are a call for us to be cautious when we pray. We need to be obedient in praying for our enemies, as described here, to be sure. We should never call down God's wrath on people for personal reasons or individual spite. We are called to be different. We are called to be light in the world. And the ability to love our enemies is not natural. It's an exhibition of supernatural power in our lives. But we must take this, the whole of Scripture into account and to put love of enemies radically above and against what other things are said in Scripture is unbiblical. So let's look at another passage on this and see what that says and how does that address it. And it's from Proverbs, um, Proverbs 24, uh, verses 17 through 20. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. For the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away. Do not fret because of evildoers, or be envious of the wicked. For the evildoer has no future hope, and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. Do you see that? The problem isn't wrath. In this case, God is the one exercising the wrath, and his judgment is completely perfect. The problem is, as fallen creatures, we don't discern very well what is righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Let's look at another passage in uh, Romans chapter 12. Never let your own revenge, or, or never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, 
and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. He's actually saying that loving your enemies in some cases will further increase their suffering. So if we say we should never pray these imprecatory psalms, that would be just unbiblical. The psalms are part of Scripture. And if we believe in the full authority, truthfulness, trustworthiness of Scripture, then God in His sovereignty not only inspired the psalmist to say this, He wanted us to express it. Remember, it's very important to remember this. God is holy. Every facet of his nature, every aspect of his character may be spoken of in this way. To his core, he is pure goodness. And he cannot tolerate any form of sin. (laughs) Anyway... In chapter 1 of Habibul, <laughs> your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. When, when then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those righteous, more righteous than themselves? Let us keep in mind, we are ambassadors for a kingdom that is not of this world. And we will find that our hearts will cry out for God's justice because of the blatant injustice we find in this world. We will find ourselves crying out, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And when we cry that, that is a cry for judgment because we know that the next time Christ comes, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And at the heart of David in this section of the psalm, is a perfectly legitimate thing for us to desire. So let's move on and see if I can tie this all together. The next thing is the call to transformation. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the everlasting Now, when I began today, I said I love Psalm 139 because it's the inspirational source of one of my all-time favorite gospel songs. I also mentioned that the tone of David's psalm was one of great comfort that is derived from knowing and believing all things are in the hands and control of a loving God. But I haven't really said anything much thus far to show us why that's of any comfort to us, have I? (laughs) So let's begin with a rhetorical question. Why is it that after 40 plus years, I would remember so vividly that lie I told to get out of work that snowy morning? It's simply because I was caught. And it ranks right up there in my life as one of the most embarrassing and shameful events in my life. I can't forget it. Here's another question. Do you think that it's the only time since then in which I have sinned against God? Unfortunately, the answer to that is a big no. Perhaps I wasn't found out on other occasions or was a more smaller inconsequential sin. To God, though, he knows it all, from the smallest inconsequential to the big and shameful. 
And yet, in spite of that, He still loves me. And He loves you. And He wants to have a relationship with us. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here uh, so I can fully make the point I'm trying to get across. I've been reading Tim Keller's book on marriage, and I think the illustration he uses for marriage so closely uh, tie us back to our Christian walk um, that it will really help us to understand this psalm. So in Tim Keller's book, he says, Marriage is so much like salvation and our relationship with Christ that Paul says you can't understand marriage without looking at the gospel. He goes on to say, So many marriages are begun with the journey to God as an afterthought. Many Christians congratulate themselves that they have married another believer, but they look at their spouse's faith as simply another factor in compatibility along, with, uh, along the lines with common, uh, common interests or hobbies. But marriage is designed by God, and it is meant to be a spiritual friendship. That means we need to be helping each other know, serve, love, and resemble God in deeper and deeper ways. The marriage relationship is a method God can use to transform our lives. When you live with another person in such close, intimate settings, it brings out and reveals traits in you that were there all along, but were hidden from everyone, including yourself. But now... They are not only seen by your spouse, they're seen by other people. Because of this, Keller says that marriage has the power of truth. The power to show us who we really are. Good marriages, Christian marriages, are those that envision a someone better and truthfully and lovingly help them get there. But truth and love need to be kept together and that is very hard. Truth without love ruins oneness. And love without truth gives the illusion of unity, but actually stops the journey and the growth. The solution to being able to keep love and truth together is grace. Our experience of Jesus' grace makes it possible to practice the two most important skills in marriage. Forgiveness and repentance. Only if we are very good at forgiving and very good at repenting can truth and love be kept together. Our problem is that when we confront others with truth of sin done against us, we more often than not are seeking to pay them back in some way. But Christians, knowing that they live only by the forgiveness of God, and the grace of God must do the work of forgiving wrongdoers in our hearts and then go confront them. One of the most basic skills in marriage and Christian life in general is the ability to tell the unvarnished truth about what your spouse or another has done and then completely, unselfishly, and joyously express forgiveness without a shred of superiority without making others feel small. That is what we see in the actions of God found in the Gospels. 
that has been the experience of God in David's life, think of Psalm 51. And his heart cries out in writing this psalm. God utilizes his omniscience to reveal our sin and the shame of that sin to transform us, not to humiliate us, which is why we can safely ask and trust him to examine our hearts and see if there remains any wickedness in us. Is what comes from an understanding that is the real purpose of our lives on this earth and part of what it means to be known by God is for us to know him. In Jeremiah chapter 9, 23, this is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Once we have become the main business of what our lives are here, why we're here in this life, and that is to know God, most of life's other problems fall into place on their own accord. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance And this is the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what is higher? What is more exalted? What is a more compelling goal than to know God? And isn't that the point of this psalm? How exalted are you, God? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them. And because of your all-knowing greatness, your almightiness, your perfect justice, Lord, I want you to know me. Help me not to fear you and weed out the wickedness in my ways and lead me into eternal life with you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what has opened the way and made this possible for us for an unbeliever to have a relationship with God. It begins with the knowledge of who we are and our current state of wickedness and rebellion, and the realization that our great need is for someone to save us. It also involves a God that loves his creation and desires to have a relationship with them so much so, he is willing to bend low and for himself to take on the nature of a creature within his own creation so he can pay the penalty for the creature's rejection of himself. Our part is to recognize our great need and accept the free gift he offers. He offers it to all. All we need to do is believe and trust in God. And for a God, not just a God, but a God who's willing to make that kind of sacrifice for his people. And and then to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us in such a way that we are restored to the creature we were supposed to be and made in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. 
and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We're about to celebrate the Lord's table, and I think it's very appropriate at this time to celebrate the Lord's table as we consider those aspects of who God is. Um, just an important matter of business is we do have an open table here, and uh, all you need to do is trust the Lord Jesus for your salvation, and you're welcome to partake. If you're not a believer, you know, just please pass the elements along. Let's pray before we go in. How cheering is the Christian's hope while toiling here below. It buoys us up while passing through this wilderness of woe. It points us to a land of rest where saints with Christ will reign, where we shall meet the loved of earth and never part again. Fly, lingering moments, fly, oh fly. Dear Savior, quickly come. We long to see thee as thou art and reach that blissful shore. O gracious Father, we gladly bow this morning before your throne. Hopefully this morning we have been either reminded of your glorious truths or learned something about your attributes a little bit better. You know us completely. You're all-powerful and all-present. You wield perfect justice and will help us to do the work of our transformation into the likeness of your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. We can only offer you our thanksgiving and pledge to obedience, which we gladly do now with your help and power. Examine our hearts now and empower us to be light pointing to you in all that we do. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.